welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we are at SCI Lighting Solutions in downtown LA. That's our touchdown podcast studio when we're on the West Coast, the best coast. We're hanging out with Paul Picard, the CTO of Course, the parent company for Ecosense. If you didn't get the chance to listen to our last episode with Paul, it talked about the social responsibility of manufacturing, of this industry, and how we push it forward for all the right reasons. But right now, it's time to dive into another conversation, one that's a little bit more technical, but very real and very important. And that's the manufacturing process of lighting technology in general. Paul's been at a few companies throughout his career and has an opportunity to bring to us a couple thoughts about what it means to be able to design and engineer one luminaire, one set of luminaires, one family that could potentially have to be built 10,000 times a day to fulfill the needs of that $50 billion global lighting industry. Paul, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks, Sam. I know that you've got a lot of passion behind lighting. I know that you've got a lot to share with us on this topic specifically. I want to dive in, but just as a recap, remind everybody who's Paul and how'd you get your start in lighting? Kind of fell into lighting early on in my career. Started off working for Lithonia Lighting before it was Acuity Brands and eventually made the leap to a little LED lighting company called LED Lighting Fixtures that got bought by Cree. Worked for Cree for a number of years, uh, eventually finishing out my time there with the sub $10 light bulb at Home Depot and then made the leap to EcoSense uh, and now Chorus. And all along the way, you've obviously had the chance to see technology evolve. You've had the chance to look at different form factors and everything. It goes without saying that anytime anything is developed in a company, there's a runway. There's a runway for R&D. There's a cost associated with it. There's so much time and effort that goes into it. And it's basically money, I won't say down the drain, but down a big hole that you've then got to lower the bucket back down into and pull back out in order to turn a product into profitability and really make it worth the time and the effort and the energy of the company. Before we get into maybe the soup nuts and bolts around that, let's just talk a little bit about kind of that core process of manufacturing. Break down what it means to be a manufacturer all the way from you know concept design through engineering and, and then into full-blown production to start off with you have to have a concept for where you're going and certainly for the organizations that i've been involved in that's been kind of a combination of technological innovation so this is what is possible to do and user experience or occupant experience basically what are the things that people want need or maybe they don't know that they want but they would be happy to have uh, in an environment so kind of coming up with the right target is the first step and is quite challenging being able to understand and being able to identify unarticulated needs. We use a phrase internally where people say, well, you know, the whole Henry Ford thing. Well, if Henry Ford had asked his customers, what did they want? They would have said faster horses. <laughs> yep. You know, the car just wasn't on their brain. Why? Because they didn't have a frame of reference to say, well, I want a car. Right? I want something I don't have to feed and put in a stall and goes faster. What they really wanted was a more convenient, easier way to get from point A to point B. And, and they couldn't articulate, well, what would that look like? That's one of the real challenges is coming back and saying, okay, what are these needs? And remove the constraints of what has been done, understand what could be done, and then kind of combine that together to come up with a target. So that's kind of step A. Step B is really the design and development. So being able to put down the specifics that are required 
hard to be able to kind of achieve the vision and then engineering something from the ground up. The challenges there for a responsible manufacturer are myriad in the sense that you have to design something that is going to not only perform well, but it's going to perform over a long period of time. It's going to be highly reliable. It's going to have a high degree of repeatability. So if if you're talking about building something 10,000 times a day, you're going to get every partner manufacturer uh, you have, every component manufacturer you have is going to be going through all of their variability as they produce your parts. You have to account for all of that variability and make sure that everything still goes together on the manufacturing floor. Increasingly, you have to worry about and pay attention to where do these parts come from? What are these parts made out of? What is the recyclability of these parts? How do you do this in a sustainable fashion versus just a rifle shot approach to say, well, this solves the problem, therefore I'll just choose it. Even the design for assembly, being able to design something. So uh, I used to joke that our VP of operations wanted us to make a product where you could just dump all the parts in a bag, shake it, and the product would ship out on the other side. Wait, uh, that's not how it happens? <laughs> it's, it's not. I, oh, come on, it's like Santa Claus. Just <laughs> yeah. jump down the chimney and off you go. Exactly. Manufacturers uh, will have what they call tack times. Basically, this is how long from Um, when someone touches the part to begin with to when someone touches the end product we want for this assembly to take on a high volume product that tack time might be two minutes three minutes to go from this is a bunch of parts to this is a finished product and ready to get put in a box being able to design in a fashion that allows for you to be able to to put something together that rapidly and that consistently right so you have to do that but do it over and over again and have it happen the same way and not induce any errors that can make it out into the field and then being able to figure out how to to assure that from whether that be quality assurance on the front end for the parts on the back end for the fixtures burn-in testing reliability long-term reliability testing etc etc there's just this never-ending list of tax that you have to take in order to make sure that you're going to end up with a quality product in the marketplace. And once you figure that out, then there's the whole, well, let's build it. Let's make sure that as we're building it, we're building it right. We're QCing it. We're putting it out into the world. And then there's the end of the life cycle, which you touched on a little bit early in terms of what are you making this out of, but what happens with it when it's done? There's so much that goes into that manufacturing process. It's not as simple as, hey, I have an idea. Let's draw it up. Let's, you know, figure it out and then let's build it and ship it and put it out into the marketplace. Lots of time and effort. If you had to estimate how long it took to go from product concept to on the production line pre-LED and today in 2021, what would you say those two numbers are? It was possible to spend a lot of time pre-LED, but a lot of that time, because you didn't control much of the process except for the wrapper, you had the the sheet metal and the lens, and that was kind of what you had to be able to operate with. Your lamp was fixed, your ballast was fixed, right? There were only so many things that you could stick together. So you could spend a lot of time, but there were many products I can remember launching early in my career where we were in and out in eight months, nine months, because the degree of freedom were fairly small and we'd had no responsibility for the source it was basically okay make sure that the ballast is kept at this particular temperature and then the, the ballast manufacturer guarantees that it's going to operate there and the lamp is just a lamp and you're done simple projects can still go that fast but for a platform level project in the led space if you're trying to do something that is going to be produced 10,000 times a day or if you're trying to produce something that has two million different skew variations and we've done both of those or i was just going to say you're trying to produce something that's going to cater to the needs of the industry and the specification market exactly yeah it can take and i'm, I'm kind of discounting r d if you're developing a new technology from the ground up that can be years of investment that goes into 
nobody's ever done this before. We want to do something like this. Here's how we're going to try and do it. But assume that you have the technology essentially sitting in front of you and now you're going to try and assemble it. It can still be a substantial, it can be 12, 15, 18 months, uh, even for large programs can be even greater than that. It can be millions of dollars in order to be able to fully test, implement, tool, and productize those things to get it out into the marketplace. So good ideas take time, yet things move faster than they've ever moved before. Lance Bennett was on our podcast recently, and I can't remember if he said this on the podcast or told me afterwards, but he said, you know, Sam, today is the slowest things will ever be. You know, the world's only speeding up and getting faster. Absolutely. Yet what you've just described is uh, a requirement to be patient in order to innovate at a level and manufacture something that is truly useful. There's a difference between throwing mud at the wall and hoping it sticks versus, you know, a perfectly sharpened dart that, you know, has got four motors and propellers that you can individually steer and nail the bullseye every time. I think I think most people want to nail the bullseye when they're designing for an interior and exterior space that's going to remain unchanged for five, six, seven decades. Yet we want everything tomorrow. It's a tough world. Uh, And I want to break that down just a little bit more. When you look at lighting, what's the goal from a manufacturing perspective? Do you want to get a, an A, an A plus when it comes to, you know, optical quality, efficiency, longevity, overall performance? Do you have to make sacrifices? Theoretically thinking about putting together a luminaire, is there a hierarchical assessment that has to be created in order to meet expectations or do people need to be patient and the process has to work through itself? I mean, there's going to be constraints of physics, right? In terms of what can be done. Sorry, what? No, I don't know anything about science. (laughs) So the capability to prioritize what the most important and the second most important, the third most important thing is for the customer, it's, it's hugely important to the development process because I've often described LED light fixture design and manufacturing as a game of whack-a-mole. It's like you you hit one thing and something else pops up. And you hit something else and it pops up. So it's like, okay, well, I I need more light. Okay, well, now you're generating more heat. Okay, well, now I need more heat sink area. Well, now it's too big. Okay, well, I can make it smaller, but now we're too hot again. Okay, well, I need it more efficient. There's nothing where you can turn a knob and another knob doesn't automatically turn with it. And so you have to have what we call even overs. Like, I want this even over that. Right. Of course, people want to have it be efficient. And and if it's a directed beam, they want narrow beams and they want it to be small and they want it to be inexpensive and they want it to be long lasting. It's all of these things. Right. It's basically taking the best of everything. But I like to tell people, right, you can't show up and say, I want it to look like a Ferrari. I want it to act like a Tesla. Right. It's going to run on electricity and I want to pay $30,000 for it. Those are all nice needs to have. But some of those things are going to get trumped. And so you're probably going to have to say, well, what's more important? And you say, well, if being $30,000 is more important, you're probably not going to look like a Ferrari. But I want it to look like a Ferrari, Paul. (laughs) Yeah. I want it to look good. I want it to make me look good at what I do. (laughs) (laughs) So the aesthetics even over price or price even over the capability to achieve a certain level of efficiency, for instance. Those are key decisions along the way. And then time is one of those aspects. So you may come back and say, I think I can do all of this maybe, but gosh, it's going to be really hard and I'm going to have to try a bunch of different things that nobody's ever tried before. And so rather than taking six months or nine months, that might be an R&D project that could take two years for me to try and come up with uh, with that technology to be able to achieve that. So all of these knobs are there and you kind of have to choose. You have to choose to say being able to generate differentiation and innovation is going to be more important than having continual updates or product launches because what you want to have in the marketplace is something that you want to be sustainable 
sustainable. It's something that you want to have legs uh, once it gets out there because it's a huge amount of effort. And if you put it out there and it's not terribly innovative, so it's it's a little bit better than everybody else, mm-hmm. well, then a year from now or two years from now, there'll be somebody else that's also a little bit better than you are. And, and now you're in a spot where you're no longer preferred. And I might argue that the notion of being just a little bit better than everybody else or anyone else or someone else isn't necessarily even product development so much as it is just sourcing the latest components and building a different version by fact of the matter of, well, they had a purchase order for 2 million units and I know they can't get through it for two years. So we're just going to do the same thing and we'll be ahead of them. I mean, there's some kind of interesting ways that what may be spun as new and innovative is just a victim of a crime mm-hmm. of the process. Mm-hmm. Probably shouldn't say crime. There's no crimes here. It's just a process. What's the hardest part to get right when you manufacture something in the, we'll just call it luminous environment? I think it depends on what you're shooting for. So I've worked at organizations where the key was efficacy, right? Uh, So early in the days of LED, it was... Most efficient because it was a simple payback, ROI calculation, and that was the basis of selling LED products into the marketplace. And so the things that, that got really difficult about that were, how do I optimize all the parameters to make something that can be as efficient as it possibly can be, but also is still affordable because the incumbent technology was significantly cheaper at, the, at that time. In latter days, the intent was not necessarily to provide the highest efficiency. It was some minimum level of efficiency, but we wanted to produce the best thing possible for that space. Not best in class, but basically best in the world. The hardest thing for me in that environment is basically knowing when to accept defeat. Because if you come out and say, I want to be amazing, then the likelihood is you're going to fail, right? You're going to hit a point where you say, this was great, this was great, this was great. All of these things are checking the box. This isn't as good as we wanted it to be. May still be better than than others, but not where we decided that it was going to be. And and kind of coming to that threshold of the weight of the benefits that we've already generated outweighs the additional six months, nine months, a year it would take to go back and basically take another run at that checkbox that we didn't manage to hit. So there is a real challenge in terms of shooting for something that's really amazing, amazing and perfect to be able to say, okay, it's not perfect. And yet, we're still going to take it to the marketplace. When I talked to our engineers about this, I'd liken it to Babe Ruth. Say, you know who hit the most home runs? Babe Ruth. And do you know who made the most strikeouts during those home run seasons? Well, that was also Babe Ruth. (laughs) Right? So when you swing really hard, uh, when you hit, you hit really well. When you miss, you miss really big. And you have to kind of come to a conclusion on that that says, this is what's going to happen. For most organizations I've been in, that just means time. Because mm-hmm. you don't just go and say, all right, I missed, and therefore, well, it, it just didn't work, and, and we'll just go with it. Typically, it means we've got to take another run. We've, we've, got, to, we've got to do better. And when you think about doing better or saying, you know, we're going to strike out, but we're also going to win big, we're going to swing for the fence, there's this opportunity to put things out there as a manufacturer, even though you know they're not amazing and perfect, because like you said, there has to be a, an acceptable level to continue to put all that stuff out. I want to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to dive in a little bit more and really sink our teeth into what does it mean to say, well, while it's not amazing and perfect, it's good enough, and off we go. Sound good? Sounds good. 
Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, this episode of the LightPod is brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They bring you things like this podcast, stories about light, and short, fun, informative videos. They're on YouTube. They're everywhere on social media. Check them out. That's L-Y-T-E-I dot com. And welcome back. Over the break, Paul and I were talking just a little bit more about the difference between something that's maybe perfect versus amazing. Paul, talk to me a little bit more about when it comes to manufacturing a product, what the difference between those two are and realistically what can be achieved. Like we were talking on the break, perfection by its nature is something that you can't get to. Nothing can ever be perfect. Even though that's what you shoot for, you kind of have to accept the limitations. And people have probably heard the adage, good, fast, cheap pick two and it's really true in life you can't have all three to the degree that you would want it to be that way and so basically when I was talking about having to kind of make those decisions about when you weren't didn't quite achieve what you were hoping to if you're really swinging for the fences then there should always be that decision at the end which is okay yeah it's not perfect but that's what we were shooting for and therefore we're disappointed that we didn't get there but is it perfect enough or is it amazing enough to be able to take out? And when you look at what you have to take out, how do you evaluate that? Is it a market condition? Is it a constraint? Is it an opportunity for profitability? Is it all of the above? It's certainly a combination. First and foremost, it has to be something that's going to satisfy the needs uh, of the customers. We can't go out with something where someone looks at it and says, hey, this is not doing what we want it to do. Or even this is really good, but if you get that sort of feedback, then you're not done yet. So the challenge typically comes down to it's not where we want it to be from a cost standpoint. It's not quite where we want it to be from an efficacy standpoint. It's not quite where we want it to be from an assembly standpoint, right? It's, it's going together too slow. There's all sorts of things where you say, okay, this was the target. We're not quite there. And yet we're willing to accept those trade-offs over some horizon. Sometimes that may be we can improve it over time. We think we understand what needs to happen and therefore we can get those things done. We'll take whatever that interim shortcoming is and basically move with that and and then we'll fix it when we're in process because we think we've we've gotten it amazing enough to the point where it's really going to have an impact in the marketplace. It's really going to do great things for our customers. We'll basically take the follow-on action to follow up with it and make sure that we nail down those last little bits later. You talk about improving something through the process, which is interesting and curious to me, and I'm sure a few others, because it's like, wait, you're not quite telling us what you haven't figured out yet, but you're going to get us there far enough and sort of speak behind the scenes, kind of continue to perfect it. I know that every product kind of has a, an opportunity to start and grow. And I'll call that start small and scale. How do you do that as a manufacturer so that you can indeed get things out into the marketplace? Is it almost like we know there's a few things that we're going to have to figure out along the way and we're not quite sure what they are in terms of there's three things that we know we can do better, but we're not sure which one the market wants or... Again, is that just, is there a process of innovation in R&D that really truly does require the market feedback at a large scale as opposed to just a beta test or a mock-up? So I think it depends on the product, but you can end up in both of those situations. You can end up where you really do need some market feedback to basically tell you this is what's required. I've found, and this is true for all the organizations I've been in, I found that the difference between talking with folks when you've got a piece of paper or you've got a prototype in your hand versus once the product is actually shipping, once people have had an opportunity to function with it 
in the real world, that's when the real insights start to get developed. You do the best you can to draw those insights out on the front end, but oftentimes they're baked in assumptions that are really hard to dislodge up until the point that someone's had six months, a year, 18 months to interact with the product. And you can go back and say, all right, we launched this product. It's done quite well with you guys. What, where did we miss? And we will actually ask that question straight up. Like, where did we miss? What did we not do that you guys needed us to do? So in a particular case, in one of our products, we had an efficacy shortfall because we focused very much on a product, getting a narrow beam angle, you know, getting the tightest beam angle at the time in a particular product category. But we made an efficacy trade-off for the wider beam angles. And so later on, we basically came out and said, how do we fix that? Well, we're going to have to do a completely different device. We're going to have to do a completely different set of optics. And that was the feedback from the marketplace. Hey, we'll use you guys all day long on the narrow beam stuff, but you just missed it. You missed it on the wide beam stuff. We really care more about efficacy there. And you're not good enough because you're basically trying to replicate this thing across the entire product line. That allowed us to basically come back and say, all right, well, that was a miss. We'll fix and we'll come out with something that's substantially more efficacious for the wider beam things. And there's just more work that had to go in to be able to, to pull that out of the ground. And, and now you've got both of those things uh, out in the marketplace. I want to talk about the money that goes into this whole process. There are eight ton of capital expenditures that go into developing a product. And what you just mentioned is a perfect example of we've got a finite amount of capital that we're going to invest in this to get it to the marketplace. And as something begins to become a successful product and gains traction in the marketplace, you make money on it theoretically, and then you use that as profitability for the company, but you also dump it back into that sustaining innovation to fix things that you either knew weren't quite right but you wanted to get market feedback on it, or you maybe did just miss the mark and you want to come back and fix it. Expand outside of the bubble of that though and take me all the way back to that R&D process. When it comes to saying we need to develop something it's millions of dollars. There is a lot of money that goes into developing anything in the architectural lighting industry today outside from activating something that's 10 years old that you can somehow repurpose. There's a range of things. The more ambitious you're going to try and be in terms of how differentiated you're going to be from what has come before, then the likelihood is the more money you're going to spend. So if you're doing something interesting in optics or you're doing something interesting in mechanics, then the likelihood that you're going to find something that's close to what you want out in the marketplace is near zero and you're pulling it out of the ground. For us, that tends to be things that happen on the electronics side versus you know going and buying something that's a black box and it's got wires coming in and wires going out and you just kind of use it as a capability. If you build that from the printed circuit board up, from the chip level up with software and hardware. All of a sudden, as a lighting manufacturer, there's all kinds of roles and responsibilities. There's people, there's overhead, there's stuff you need that you didn't have. And that all costs money. For sure. But the ability there is to say, we want to take an experience to the marketplace that doesn't exist. And you can go to an off-the-shelf manufacturer and say, I want to do this crazy thing. And they might look at that and go, well, that's great, but we don't see, especially if you're in the architectural space, right? So if you say, well, this is something that could ship 50 million units a year, someone might go, oh, well, that's worth our investment to go and try and do the R&D to develop it because we're going to have all these customers. But if you're in the architectural space and, and a high volume program for you in that space might be 500,000 units a year. I mean, I could look at that and go, gosh, that's two years worth of our time. And we don't see this going broad. We really don't think that's going to be worth our investment to be able to do it. So you end up having to do it yourself. And that's got a cost associated with it, to your point. From a personnel standpoint, from a developmental standpoint, most people don't probably realize, even when you know kind of the core of the design that you want to do from an electronic standpoint, you'll go through multiple spins. And what a spin is, is basically you'll do a development level board, which is the size and shape just that makes sense to put the circuit down, but has nothing to do with your product. And you'll validate that things operate or not, and then figure out kind of what the next spin 
and then the next spin, basically, you're going to go and do a whole new board with a whole new layout, stencils, uh, components, etc. And that's typically going to be in the form factor. Very rarely do you launch an electronics program where you only go through two spins. Oftentimes, you're at least in a third spin to be able to get that done. And sometimes, it looks great by itself, and then you go and stick it in a product, and because you've got this big metal casing around this electronic thing now, now all of a sudden you're... EMI, so you can't pass FCC or you can't pass your CE requirements if you're selling into Europe or whatever the case might be. And now you have to go through another spin. Every time you do one of those spins, you're generating hundreds of printed circuit boards and hundreds of assemblies. And you're all doing it at very low volume and you're doing it through prototype shops. Which means high cost. Which means high cost. And you look at that and as an industry broadly, because in the past we kind of grew up as assemblers, right? When I started in the lighting industry, we were taking components from other people and assembling them together and then putting wrappers around them. You kind of discount or you don't recognize is the fact that, gosh, every time Advance or Universal or somebody came out with a ballast, they had to go through this whole process with, you know, validation testing and multiple iterations on these printed circuit boards. And they were taking care of all of that separate from lighting manufacturers. But today, lighting manufacturers have to do all of that. And they have to do that across not only the drivers, but the diodes, the printed circuit boards, and all the other technology that we haven't even talked about on this podcast because it doesn't exist, but it's going to exist. Lighting is clearly getting more and more and more complex to the point where a lighting manufacturer is going to be, I'll make it up, you know, capable of making computers for cars or some other, you know, high-tech device that while it may seem like, you know, it's just a light fixture, you're doing all this research and innovation on the inside to continue to push things forward. And I know that, you know, you work with Chorus, which is the parent company to EcoSense, which is predominantly a new company. I would say in our industry, maybe new and established, but um, not old by any means. And I would just ask you, when you look at the responsibility to figure out how to manufacture products moving forward, it's inevitable companies are going to show up in our industry today that are startups, literally. Maybe they're just coming from a different space or sector. What are some exciting things for you that you hope and wish and look to see as we push forward and trying to figure out how to continue to do this at a large scale and serve the needs of the community? So I think there's opportunities and potential challenges. I remember having this conversation with people at an industry forum probably six or eight years ago. And the talk at the time was, oh, the consumer electronics industry is going to figure out that lighting is this huge industry and we're going to get invaded by whatever, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they're going to come in, they're going to take over. And you had some people saying, well, it's just, it's inevitable, right? It's going to happen because it makes sense, right? Digital technology is being incorporated into lighting. It's getting more and more like a consumer electronic product. And so it just makes more sense. And other people basically saying, oh, you know, they're not going to enter. They don't understand the lighting industry. See, you know, Samsung tried to do it and they couldn't pull it off. And there's folks that have tried and it doesn't stick. There is going to be some sort of convergence because we are headed in the same sort of direction. Lighting manufacturers are not building iPhones right now. But if you continue to build intelligence into lighting systems, you continue to go more and more digital, you continue to abstract away from kind of traditional forms, then you're getting closer and closer to consumer electronics. And some of those same skill sets are going to apply in both directions to the point where I think you could see lighting manufacturers generating consumer electronics. And I think you could see consumer electronics companies entering into lighting spaces. I won't um, embellish on this too much, but it's connection that I think we should just put out there. Philips has their Philips Hue system. It is a light bulb that has an app that is I would say, by and large, arguably the number one consumer electronic the lighting industry makes today. When you look at all the spec names out there, all these people that we deal with in our architectural world, you know, there's 
250 spec grade manufacturers out there. They're all selling into a commercial space through a B2B network. And Philip sits over here on this island and they're just slaying the consumer world. Why couldn't four more people create those consumer products? I know the bigger conglomerates with both Cooper Lighting, uh, Signify, Acuity Brands, they're figuring out how to put speakers and downlights, you know, for 49 bucks that are LED that people can buy on the shelf at Home Depot and plop up. You mentioned Cree that you worked with, and I don't know if I can consider a light bulb a consumer electronic. It's pretty basic, but at the end of the day, I mean, it, it kind of is too. They're they're doing a connected color-changing bulb now too, uh, a Wi-Fi-based bulb with with no hub. Uh, so saw that come out, and, and they've been winning awards with it too. So there's all these opportunities. The bottom line is humans. We live in a connected world. We live in a tech-driven world, and whether anybody likes likes it or not, it makes us more efficient, it gives us more flexibility, and it creates a unique and custom experience. And when you think about lighting, it's about telling that story. It's about creating that experience and it's about customizing it to the occupant in the space. A sequence of operation is a very real thing today and it will not be in the future. You'll communicate directly with the building system based on where you are and there will be a sequence of operation no longer. It'll be, well, Sam's in the room, do this. Yeah, Paul sure. joined him. Change it. What is that? Sam mean? left. Now it's only Paul. Change it again. Right. It becomes a curated experience. As you think about manufacturing, I want to circle back to the first thing we talked about, which is making something that you put out every day. I use the number ten thousand times a day. It's an arbitrary number. It could be higher or lower. What's important is that we encompass all of this back into a single location. But as an industry, we seek this opportunity and we challenge it. You're at Chorus, a parent company to EcoSense. Tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing today to further all of this. There's really two overarching themes in terms of what we're doing at Chorus. One is a carryover from what we started at EcoSense, and, and that's really building things based on systems and platforms, which is trying to build uh, technology building blocks that are transportable and multifunctional, such that you're not building rifle shot solutions for single products, but you're anticipating what are the types of products that could use these types of technologies, and then building those technology building blocks in order to enable them to drop into those particular applications. There's multiple advantages to this. One is that from a manufacturing standpoint, if something needs to change and I'm using the same block over and over again, I change it once and it ripples across multiple product lines because I've, I've replicated that technology building block someplace else. Two is consistency. And so if I have a technology building block and it's put into five, six, seven different products, then my consistency of experience, whether it's color quality or color uniformity or method for control, et cetera, et cetera. That's maintained across all of those things because I'm using the same element to be able to go and do that. And then from a effectiveness standpoint in the marketplace, if I can use that same thing with as little uh, modification as possible over and over again, then I can deploy something that looks like a scaled solution, even if I don't have individually scaled product platforms. So I don't have to necessarily have something that I ship 10,000 of a day. I could have seven platforms, each of which ship 1,000 a day. But if they're using the same technology elements, then my technology elements look like I'm pulling 7,000 a day. And now I can really generate those economies of scale to be able to take something to the marketplace uh, in a cost-effective fashion that I might not have been able to do if I was just saying, well, I want that particular function for this particular product and I'll develop it for that particular 
particular product. That's one element of what we have done and are continuing to do at Chorus. And then the second one really kind of revolves around spectral recipes, and that's taking the work that's been done with Ecosense originally and, and now with continuing on with Chorus around the ability to manipulate spectra. And these are typically four-channel solutions, so they give you lots of variability and flexibility in terms of how to generate different spectra within the, the white color space and even the non-white color space. And then layer on top of that, uh, since Sora became part of the family last year, layer on top of that kind of the Sora technology that we acquired and the ability to be able to do interesting things with Zero Blue or Vivid or some of the other approaches that Sora has taken in the past and basically helping generate those curated experiences through Spectra. Spectral tuning is something that we could talk about. It's a word that honestly, I think that could be in everyone's vocabulary in the world someday. Probably the most important thing about lighting these days. We can control the kind of light. It goes without saying that, um, you know, plants and horticulture want a certain light and humans want a certain light and we got technology that can do all that. Paul, thank you so much for chatting with us today and, and breaking down a little bit more about what it takes and, and also what you're doing to further all of this to create these cool opportunities when it comes to being a manufacturer. It's uh, by no small task, uh, something that's very challenging today. And I wish you and your team at, at Chorus and Ecosense the best of luck as you continue to push through innovation in these next couple of years. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, has a question or just wants to chat more, what's the best way they can get in touch with you? You can find me on LinkedIn or reach me at paul.picard at chorus.com. That's Paul. Paul's a lighting nerd. Give him a call. Give him a chat. I'm sure he'd love to catch up with you. Paul, thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Sam.